Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. We're actually pretty good at recycling hard plastics like bottles and pots, but recycling rates of flexible or soft plastics are dismally low, and we need to either increase recycling of these items or radically change the way we do things. My guest today on First Mile's Climate Heroes is taking a unique but beautifully simple approach to the plastic problem, and they are on a mission to make plastic disappear. Pierre Pazer is co-founder of Notpla, who have invented a new flexible plastic packaging made from seaweed and plants. And their novel materials are replacing conventional plastics, but also our relationship with packaging and how we consume goods. Pierre, it is a huge pleasure to have you on First Mile's Climate Heroes, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's yeah, superb to have you on the show. So, Massive achievement at the end of uh, 2022, I think it was towards the end of 22, when you won the £1 million Earthshot Prize in the category Building a Waste-Free World. Now, that is a huge achievement, global prize, so massive uh, congratulations. Has that been absolutely transformational for your business? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it sounds quite kind of like uh, corny to say it, but it really is a before-after we're really excited because the the price is both kind of like a, like a huge recognition of, uh, of of our work and like the credibility that it provides is significant. The million pound is obviously kind of like a really beneficial kind of like acceleration uh, to our activities, but the price also is uh, first and foremost a network of like companies that are really doing everything they can to try to accelerate the impact of all the finalists. And therefore, we are already seeing uh, a lot of doors opening, a lot of kind of like support that we couldn't dream of that is now being made available to the company. So it really is a, a super acceleration. Absolutely superb. And um, you know, what's the environmental problem that you're addressing, which led you to, um, first of all, enter the Earthshot Prize and then ultimately win it? Why are you here? What does Notplar do? So Notplar is a sustainable packaging company that is developing alternatives to single-use plastics using seaweed and plants um, as a much more sustainable material than the man-made fossil fuel kind of like derived petroleum uh, plastics that are um, like used in so many of our day-to-day uh, -day activities. So really what we're looking at is, is, a, is a pollution problem, it's a health problem, it's introducing a material that nature doesn't know and doesn't kind of like recognize in kind of like billions of tons and just hoping for the best. But the reality is now we are starting to have a lot of kind of like data points that we are unbalancing the ecosystem beyond what nature can deal with. And, and it's having some significant um, kind of like consequences for, for ourselves and for other kind of like forms of life on this planet. So plastic has its use. Um, in the medical industry, it saves lives every day and no one is kind of like saying that we should stop using it for those high kind of like performance applications. But single use is really the worst case scenario because the material is literally indestructible. So when you consume something for five minutes, but you leave behind an indestructible shell, you're really creating a, a problem for kind of like so many generations to come. And that's really what we're trying to address. 
And is that, and then how are you making plastic disappear? Because are you just switching it to another type of organic plastic or is your, is your product at NOTPLA actually going to disappear? So NOTPLA actually stands for not plastic. So we're not a plastic. And luckily in the past kind of like couple of years, there's been a, a bit of standardization of what is and isn't a plastic as a definition, uh, which is very helpful for us because that's the very same definition that we were founded upon eight years ago. A plastic is essentially something that either is uh, like not abundant in nature or is starting as a um, kind of like a natural biomass, but is chemically modified and end up being a plastic. So if you don't have those two characteristics that like make you not a plastic, you're essentially a plastic. And this definition is really helpful because there's a bunch of materials out there that are using a lot of kind of like very marketing savvy kind of like denominations that are pretending to be kind of like uh, the solution we're all hoping for. But the reality is at the end of the day, they are plastics and they have the problems of plastics. So uh, you've got uh, bioplastics like PLA, um, even PHA. Uh, you've got a lot of kind of like chemical additives that are uh, also used in, in, in the industry that are all plastics, but uh, that aren't kind of like necessarily uh, recognized as so uh, by uh, most companies. And so the big switch with this definition is to make everyone align on what is and isn't the plastic. And luckily on the other side, you've got natural polymers. Those materials have been around for hundreds of millions of years. They are kind of like what makes uh, trees and seaweeds and our skin and all of the kind of like living world is using those natural polymers in complete adequation with the rest of kind of like the, the, the life cycle of, of materials on earth, which is once the application is done, the kind of like tree has died or the piece of seaweed has been kind of like ripped from like uh, the rocks by a strong current, that material will be very easy for the rest of like the ecosystem to turn back into the next seaweed and the next plant. And that's because those are mostly polysaccharides or proteins that are very easy for uh, nature to deal with, with like, microorganisms, eating them and turning them into food and essentially kind of like just repurposing them. So the great thing is that nature has an enormous amount of those materials available and it's just on us to start using them and making sure that by using those materials, uh, we never push it beyond what it can do. Pierre, it's quite clear, it's not a plastic, it's natural. Not plar is a natural material, it's a regenerative material, it comes back to nature. But this is probably going to be quite hard because it's uh, audio, not video. But how do your, what do your packaging looks like? I mean, maybe we talk about your first product, that Uho. How does it look? Yeah, so we started basically with a, a slightly kind of like unusual approach, which was to think if we were packaging things the way fruit and vegetables are like naturally occurring in, in the environment, what would packaging look like? And the first experimentation was really to like package a, a small dose of water, a bit like a, the size of a, a tomato or a cherry tomato. And we thought, what if we could make packaging edible? And, and that little uh, bubble became something that was super interesting because it became a little bit the, the North Star, like what can packaging become if we extract ourselves from the traditional formats that have been created around plastic. We realized that actually like we could think of like places where we could consume packaging the same way we consume fruits, 
uh, that would be a, 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 an incredibly kind of like relevant uh, standard to aim for because that's what nature has been using for millions of years. And with this first product, which is essentially like a transparent little bubble about the size of a cherry tomato that you can eat afterwards if you want, and that contains um, either like a water or a beverage, an, a cocktail, like energy, uh, like drink, can find itself being very useful in a whole lot of like uh, 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 occasions. So we started doing marathons, uh, those races where you see aftermath kind of like like tons of uh, bottles on the ground, uh, blown by the wind, uh, an army of people chasing them because you need to kind of like have that kind of effort to decontaminate the streets from like the, the race. Um, um, so that that was like a very good example, very good visual example of like how we could have an impact on instant consumption of like uh, like a huge amount of uh, plastic cups of bottles. We've been bringing them to festivals. We've been bringing them to uh, other mass participation events, and it became clear that like it was a really good way to consume uh, on the go uh, for like those places where there's a high chance of littering, and that's been what we've been focusing on. And then a little bit further down the line, we realized that we could also fill them with ketchup and mayo and use them instead of those plastic kind of like uh, foil sachets that you find uh, typically kind of like uh, for takeaway food. In this case, the goal is not so much to eat it because it might not be very nice. But the thing is, if you know you can eat it, it means nature can eat it. And it's never going to create a long lasting waste. And that was a bit kind of like the standard of, of kind of like not introducing something that wouldn't be edible because then you don't know what's going to happen in nature. Are they quite delicate then, these products and packaging? Because it's sort of... Uh... Yeah, very much like fruits. So uh, it's not something you would kind of like chuck in your bag at the bottom of your kind of like uh, backpack and uh, let it kind of like get kind of like crushed by your laptop. But again, like fruits work in a lot of occasions. So um, the goal was not to replace it all. It was to kind of like show that there was an alternative. And what you really did is like, get us started on this uh, like on this journey of developing this technology and realizing how we could leverage seaweed how we could leverage um, some of those new like formulations to tackle some of that plastic and and from there we started to expand into other categories of products where we could replace some plastic um, so our second product is a is, is a coating that we use for takeaway food boxes Typically, when you get your takeaway, either like, the box is fully plastic or it's cardboard, but it's never just cardboard. It's cardboard with a thin layer of plastic on the inside because cardboard doesn't resist to the moisture or the grease of the food. And so this is where we can replace that thin layer of plastic with the seaweed and end up with a, with, with a box that is recyclable, but also kind of like biodegradable without requiring industrial composting or any kind of like specific conditions. And this is something that we are now rolling out at large scale uh, across Europe um, with a partnership with Just Eat, the like, delivery platform. Um, and I think a lot of people have focused in, certainly in the UK, on this plastic lining on coffee cups and hot beverage cups, but it's across so many categories. I mean, anything you get food to go in a cardboard container has probably got a plastic lining, sandwich wrappers, pots, packaging. And can you replace that across the entire range? Can you do hot drinks as well? So that's very much the ambition. As as like a, a practical and like small uh, like innovator, we've we've got to kind of like go uh, step by step into this this adventure. We realized that there was a really great kind of like 
opportunity to enter the food service market first and that the technical performance of our material were like ready for that. So that's where we've started and now are kind of like significantly uh, present in that market in Europe. But we, we very much have like coffee cups and some of the, mo the most challenging applications uh, in mind for the next generation of, uh, of coating that we put kind of like on, the, on, on the, the market. So it's all in development at the moment. And has the Earthshot price helped you get, say, for example, into Just Eat with that sort of coated plastic, uh, coated cardboard packaging uh, for takeaway food? Or, or was that in the pipeline already and, and the Earthshot's about the next thing? So the Earthshot, the Earthshot is very much about the next thing. Um, we've been working with Just Eat for close to four years now on like taking this innovation all the way to having them kind of like use it across six countries now in, in Europe. Um, so it's been a, a, a true collaboration and kind of like a patient one. But what we are hoping now is that we can replicate this with a lot more companies now that we have more visibility, also like more of a track record of like taking these things out of the lab and into kind of like the market. And we can do it again with um, stadiums and distributors and caterers and food companies and brands. Um, so we're very kind of like much open for, for those discussions to do it uh, at a larger scale. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. And so you burst onto the scene. I think there was a there was a um, a, a video of people eating water and, and juices in the Uho um, that went viral. And you burst on the scene, sort of uh, I think around about 2019, a few years ago. But it's been a long slog. I mean, Notpla have been around for eight eight years now, which is it's a challenging time. Um, and you know, success hasn't come quickly. What what's the? How did you become? A climate hero. How did you get involved in in Notpla? What's the story? Before we come back to these wonderful products, I want to hear about Pierre. So I I started my career as a packaging engineer. I was working in the cosmetics industry for L'Oreal, uh, launching on the market a lot of like products that would be packaged in plastic, like uh, creams and uh, lotions and all sorts of different kind of like skincare products and. There was definitely kind of like a, a moment of realization that when you're sitting in front of the conditioning lines, those products are flying like um, at incredible speed. It's all very organized and very controlled. And you can't help but think, how come we have zero kind of like control and zero plan for taking care of all this material we're putting in the world the same way we are doing it when we're creating it? We're just kind of like letting it go. And like all of this has to go somewhere. And I think that like at that point, I realized that I didn't want to continue kind of like putting my brain to use for a company that didn't necessarily have kind of like at that point, the, the attitude of trying to change that situation. Um, so I left that job and came to study a master's in London um, where I met my co-founder, Rodrigo. And at that point, there was really no plan to get back into packaging. I think it just happened quite organically. But during this master's, we looked at a way to turn some of the ideas that we had of like man-made fruits into a reality by just playing with some of the 
natural materials we could find in our cupboard and ordering some kind of like powder extracts from plants and roots and different kind of natural materials um, uh, from, from the internet. And that's when we realized that there was a great opportunity to use seaweed as an alternative to single-use plastics. And uh, we made the first prototypes that we made a video of and that became a, a viral sensation without us expecting it. It just kind of like got on to get like millions of views on YouTube and so on. So at that point, we realized that people were really interested about having alternatives to plastic. And those alternatives weren't going to come from big companies and big groups. So we felt almost a responsibility to kind of like bring it to the next level. Although we had no experience with entrepreneurship or developing kind of like um, materials at scale. So it was very much a, like a true kind of like journey of learning and developing these things the best we could uh, with the best support we could get. So we started getting uh, like grants to start to get the first um, chemists and engineers on board, um, starting to work a bit on the technology to, to make it like a little bit more performant than what we had done in the kitchen. And, and from there, we were able to fundraise the first kind of like first significant amount of money to really go and like develop machinery and materials blends. Um, and, and, and from there, we ended up being very well placed with like um, the world around us taking a lot more kind of like attention to the plastic problem. So that was probably like these like first three, four years of kind of like being preparing for acceleration. Uh, came in kind of like uh, like handy for when the world came to realize that plastic was really something we had to do something about. And that was a, an inflection point. We were able to raise a lot more capital and accelerate on our plans and, and bring some of these things to market. And seaweed isn't sort of like the most obvious choice, sort of um, being based in London, trying to figure out how to make a a sort of non-plastic packaging. What what led you to the road to seaweed? I mean, it's a, you, you're sort of on all your social media, you made it look incredibly glamorous and fantastic, uh, but it's not sort of like a thing that we most of us see much of. It's quite invisible. Seaweed is really interesting because um, actually in times of crisis, it's kind of like saved the day for humans across kind of like millennia. And we still have this slightly kind of like conflictual relationship with seaweed. We think of it as the weird smelly thing on the beach when actually it really is kind of like something that is like key part of, of life um first of all we we are derived from seaweed seaweed was the first thing that was on the planet the first form of life like everything kind of like came from the ocean so it is kind of like the the common root we have with 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 everything it also means that those materials they have been the longest on the planet so they have had the most time to evolve and actually, when you look at it, there's like over 12,000 species of seaweed. Some of them have more diversity between two species of seaweed than between a mushroom and a bear. So that's how much diversity we're talking about. And we still only talk about it as seaweed. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's full of kind of like elements that are only synthesized by, by seaweed and, and that have been key to our development. So that's why I say like, there's been a really interesting kind of like relationship with, with seaweed. Mm -hmm. For us, seaweed started as like something we stumbled upon. It was used as a, like an ingredient for like a, a culinary technique for making fake caviar that was invented by Unilever in the 1940s. And we simply tried to replicate that. So we kind of like read online a bit about like how the initial patents were trying to kind of like uh, make it work. And then we 
found the right ingredients. And to our surprise, we were able to make tiny bubbles and then bigger bubbles and then bigger bubbles. So that was really kind of the, 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 the starting point. But then as we educated ourselves about seaweed, we started to realize how it was truly hitting um, all the boxes of what a virtuous packaging material should be. It doesn't compete with uh, fresh water and like uh, land use compared to agriculture. It doesn't require fertilizers. It grows very quickly. Some of the seaweed that we've used in the lab grows up to a meter per day. So it's one of the fastest growing organisms on the planet. And in, importantly, in end of life, it naturally biodegrades without needing any special conditions because it's a material that's been around for so long that the vast majority of bacteria know exactly what to do. It even sequesters carbon as it grows. So the question is like, why isn't seaweed more used as a packaging material? And, and that's kind of like the, the realization that like we, we came to, to have uh, a few years back. Like there really is a lot of reasons for this material to be used a lot wide, like a, a lot more than plastics, which on the other end has a lot of drawbacks. Yeah. And that's quite incredible. And, and and are you taking the, obviously without giving away any of your secrets, is it very much around sort of taking the seaweed, harvesting it, processing it, and then building it back into something? Or is it actually quite close to its natural form when you build it, when you're making it back into a, into a, into a packaging product? Yeah. So in a way, it's not too dissimilar to how you would start from kind of like corn and you would end up with flour. What we do is that we just kind of like filter out the parts of the seaweed that are not desirable for a particular application, which is typically the green smelly bits. Um, and we, we, we focus our attention on like the gelatinous part for most of our products. But we've also been very keen to make sure that if we start using a lot of that kind of like uh, gelatinous part of the seaweed, we have a bit of a plan for the leftovers because it would be a very linear approach to just focus on one element and not kind of like try to have a circular approach to this. So recently we've introduced two products that use the leftover from our own kind of like extraction kind of like process so that none of, nothing goes to waste. So today we make paper and rigid materials out of the fibers that are left after our, uh, our process for making the coating and the ohos which means that we can use 100% of the biomass and we don't leave any waste behind. And so your product range is, um, uh, you've got quite a range now from the Uho to the ketchup sachet, the coating on cardboard film, you're making plastic bags, and the paper product using the fibrous elements of seaweed. So there's a, there's a good range of uh, packaging products there which will you know, fulfill the requirements of quite a lot of businesses in a wide range of applications. How on earth are you going to scale up and what are the challenges to scaling up? Is it just money or is there, is there some other challenges out there? It's a whole range of challenges. Um, <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> so I think that like um, it's fair to say that not all our products are at the same level of development. What we want is to create that kind of like ever-growing catalog of, of, of solutions. But we're starting with a handful now and, and we're really showing that it's possible. Like Our takeaway boxes... Uh, last year, we made the first million boxes. That was the first time we made a million of something. That was a really exciting moment. This year, we, we, we are on our way to unlocking manufacturing capacity for making 50 times that quantity. So we really are now at the scale where we are operating on industry standard uh, production lines at industry standard speeds. So the goal is really to make those materials retrofit into the existing infrastructure and invite people who were 
buying previously plastic or synthetics to use our materials instead and, and, and kind of like let them change their industry by kind of like using us instead of, of plastic. It's obviously kind of like a, a long process because it requires collaboration with big industry partners who have like a very tight kind of like approach to um, making their lines available for trials and testing. They usually are operating on like thin margin and they have like their own problems to deal with. So it really requires from the top a willingness to embrace this kind of like future of packaging that is happening, that is going to happen anyway. But you, you need to be an early adopter rather than like a, a, a laggard to really kind of like make the decision of working closely with an innovator. And I think that we've luckily found some of those partners that are now reaping the benefits of that. But it takes that kind of like willingness to try to stop the line, to put a new material, to probably have like quite a lot of cleanup to do the first time you do it because it kind of like doesn't work the way you want it. But by the kind of like fifth or sixth trial, actually, it's all now kind of like looking quite positive. And, and then come the, the orders from the justice of this world. So I think that uh, one of the challenges is definitely not just the money, but like the willingness of partners to work collaboratively with us and not to put it as, as the last item on the agenda and giving us like a chance to trial our product once every six months, but actually kind of like spending weeks on, on, on this to, together to, to work on it. And then obviously there's all the kind of like classic kind of like setting up a new supply chain, working with new kind of like quality standards, setting up all sorts of kind of like change that the industry is not really kind of like good at usually. And that requires a lot of championing from individuals within those organizations to say, I'm going to make this happen. I know it's not going to be kind of like easy because I have to convince a lot of people internally, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. And that's how we've been able to kind of like make some of those jumps from the lab to multiple countries. On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd leave a, a kilogram of seaweed, but I'll dry it first to make sure that it doesn't rot and like disappear within a couple of months. Fantastic. We'll enjoy having it in there. And if you had if you had an audience with... Um, Rishi Sunak, the current prime minister, or maybe Sakir Starmer, if we're hedging our bets, what would you ask them to do? What What would be the key change in policy that you'd you'd want, really, from not Plaza's perspective? For me, the the main thing is that if we could draw a line in the sand, like a few years down the line, and really indicate how strong of a stance we want to have on plastic, this would generate so much funding for innovation, and it would create the solutions that will kind of like supply the market. And the fact that we are not giving that long-term view on, 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 on policy means that we are hiding behind the fact that like the market is not ready to find an alternative. And I think that's that's a bit what is missing. Like if we could have something that says instead of like the current UK ban that is going to be very kind of like narrow focus, banning only a handful of products and there's lots of loopholes, um, to say we're actually gonna do it. We're gonna ban like plastic, the, the whole definition for all of these products by 2025, 2026, whatever horizon you want to give it, money will flow into innovating for finding those solutions. Um, and I think that would be one of the biggest kind of like biggest impact. But we have to be very strict about what good looks like. 
and those kind of like exclusions that we talked about, like uh, the, the the distinction between plastic and, and and natural polymers. Today, there's a number of loopholes that allow uh, things like aqueous coating, like water-based dispersion coating, to take over the market, pretending to be plastic-free, whereas it's literally like tiny acrylate microplastics. You've got PFAS, those kind of like additives that are forever chemicals that are full of like um, like all of the pulp molded products. So by, by having like a slow agenda, we're basically letting all of these bad solutions creep in and we have to be a lot stronger about this. Excellent. So that's a policy change. From a not-plus perspective, what does success look like to you in, I don't know, three, five, 10, 20 years' time? How do you know when you've done a good job what success looked like? As I mentioned, when we've kind of like, uh, when we reached the 1 million units made last year, that was like, that felt like a significant milestone. If we can hit the 1 billion, I think that we've proven that like this works at a global scale. So I'm looking for uh, any um, food service company out there that would like to purchase 1 billion uh, units from ourselves uh, and we'll, we'll make it happen. Uh, just give us the, the order. No, but like seriously, I think that like what would be really exciting is just to have this replicated in other geographies because I think at that point, nothing can stop uh, this from being kind of like a, a, a mainstream solution. So um, finding the right kind of like way to bring this to the US, Southeast Asia would be a really great kind of like level of success. And Pierre, I know your uh, billion unit customer is listening to this show now. So how do they find you? What's your website? Notpla.com, N-O-T-P-L-A.com. You can drop me an email directly at pierre at notpla.com with in the subject line, one billion units. And I will <laughs> take that call. <laughs> Excellent. And that'll be your top priority email to reply to. Um, fantastic. Pierre, it's been absolutely superb having you on the show. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with the projects. It's absolutely fantastic. And again, huge congratulations on winning that Earthshot Prize. Thank you so much. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.